Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. In this series called Won't You Be My Neighbor? Won't You Be My Neighbor? Last week I had the opportunity to kick us off talking about the haven of honor in Woodstock and a lot of good response from that message. Um, I hope it meant as much to you as it meant to me and the way that we live out and obey God's word in honoring those that are in our lives. Uh, I want to thank you for being here today. If you are new with us, thank you so much. We take this opportunity to study the word of God we as a community come around the Word of God, and we have found that when we do so, uh, it changes the way we live. Many of you may have received a message card upon your entrance. You can look at that, or if you want to use your smartphone, you can um, use that as well in the Version app. I just want to say happy Valentine's Day. So I uh, hope that's awesome for you. I uh, hope it's amazing, regardless of the circumstances right now. I pray that uh, today God would speak to you. As God said to the church in Asia Minor, Laodicea, return and do the things you did at first. Jesus is indeed all of our first love, is he not? And uh, so we appreciate uh, you joining us. I want to covet your prayers, uh, Meredith and I do, for uh, Meredith's father, Dewey, who is still battling. He is on day 12 of a ventilator, um, and he, he, his lungs uh, are the problem. So his body is getting the oxygen it needs to other organs. That is, the organs are getting great checks, um, but he's not improving in the lungs. And we're in a, now a pivotal window uh, as we go into that 14 to 21 day. Um, they need to get some strength in his lungs to perform a tracheostomy, but the tracheostomy can't happen until he gets some strength. And he's a young man. He's only 67, and we believe God's will is to raise him up. That's what we believe. I got in a wrestling match last night with God. I don't know if you do that time to time. It doesn't happen much. None of us like to see our spouses suffering. And um, what I have found is that my biblical theology is not always biblical. I don't know if you've found that before. I often think that my theology is always informed by praxis of the scripture. And then what I find is that I often pick up expectations of man and it becomes my theology. So I read again in Isaiah 62 yesterday where it says, you who put the Lord in remembrance, don't you dare give him rest. Now, I don't know about you, but I would not have allowed that form of prayer to form my theology. But therein again, I have to allow the Bible itself to confront my theology. And the Bible tells me that I, at that moment, can bombard heaven and not let him rest until he does what I'm asking him to do. And that's to heal my brother. It's to heal my brother. So we covered your prayers this week that God would see a, we'd see a turnaround in Dewey's life. And we'll be heading up to Chattanooga, of course, after today as well. But can we agree with that? that God will do a miracle in his life. And uh, the way we started praying this week is our kids know, they know Papa, they love Papa with all that they have, um, is just, why not, God? Why not just blow my kids' minds? Just heal him miraculous. My kids will know forever you're a, you're a miracle-working God. Why wouldn't you want to do it? So I got in a wrestling match last night. If you've ever been in there, frustrated, but yet I believe, I believe God's going to do a miracle in his life. And that's all we're asking for you to agree with us. Amen? Amen and amen. So as we look in the text today, if you have a Bible, go with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to begin. I want to welcome those that are streaming live. Thank you for being with us today. And I believe God is going to speak to us. I believe 
in love at first sight? <laughs> well, sort of. It was the 9th of February, 2002, on an evening, and I was at a steak and shake in Hickson, Tennessee. And as I was eating my floss fries, if you're ever eating steak and shake, you know what I'm talking about. The floss fries, you can floss, they're so thin, right? So as we're eating our floss fries and Frisco melt, there at Steak and Shake, I look across and across the table from me is Meredith Ann Robertson. And uh, my first thought was, hey, Mrs. Mossgrove, what shall we name our children? <laughs> no, that's not what I thought first. That would have been bad. But uh, true story, I got born again the next morning, February 10th, 2002. I just celebrated 19 years this week of knowing Jesus. And um, uh, a few weeks into this, uh, she was two years older than me. She's still two years older than me. She was, but she's no longer. Um, she's two years older than me. And she went to an opposing rival school and she had a friend named Rachel. And Rachel, I, I took a little, kind of little liking to. We say that in Tennessee, it's a phrase, a liking to. And so I started picking up Rachel for church on Wednesday nights for youth group. And so I'd give her roses and I'd pick her up and bring her to church. Now Meredith had never dated anybody younger than her, so she never imagined that would be a, a possibility. Well, something happened when she started realizing I was picking up her best friend with flowers. And she started imagining, wow, could I honestly like him myself? Like, you know, what's, what's going on here? True story. Um, we've known each other now about 40 days. Uh, I'm, again, uh, this is right after meeting Jesus. So most of you, you know my story, my BC days. And that's called Before Corona Today, but it's Before Christ in my book, okay? And so in my BC days, um, I am a little rough around the edges. So we're at a party one night for a friend in our church. His name is Don O.C., and he was turning 50, so we had a 1950s party. And so, you know, we're looking like the outsiders, you know, with our camels rolled up in our pockets and, and jean jackets and, you know, black jackets, all that kind of stuff, leather jackets. And so we're doing this whole deal, and I just started teaching some women at the church, from the church how to do a dance called a four-step. And these are women 20, 30, 40 years my senior. So at that time, Meredith is standing off to the side and her mom, Teresa, says, hey, Craig, would you teach me how to do that? So I start teaching her mom how to do this dance. And the pastor and his wife are setting, standing up against the wall, no joke, and the pastor's wife said to Dewey, which was her dad, which is her dad, sitting there next to him and looked over at Dewey and said, hey, I think that young man might be in your family one day. And we had known each other for about about 40 days, we're not dating at this point. And lo and behold, that night ends and I'm going to another friend's house to spend time with Rachel, my girlfriend, right? Or at least my interest. And so I'm standing at the door, opening the door to go out and they form a little half moon, you know, to say goodbye. So I turn around and I just start giving them hugs, you know? Hey, yeah, we'll see you next time. Yeah, we'll see you next time. I get to Meredith, we'll see you next time. And I move to the next person and she jokingly, but she said it nonetheless, said, hey, is that all I get? So I reached right over and kissed her right on the lips, and I turned around and left. Now, people say, did you really? Yeah, I really did that, okay? Um, yeah, so that was my life. So uh, that, was, that was sanctified, okay, previous to the 40 days before that, okay? So I did. Didn't think anything about it. That's a true story. Didn't think much about it. Just kissed her, went off, hung out with, with Rachel that night. Well, at that point, something changed. Something changed. She started pontificating. If, man, I could really like him, right? I always tell people that that kiss had the power of a lifetime behind it. But we started dating officially on April 14, 2002. We date for years. I get married. We get married very young. I was the ripe age of 21, just turned 21. She was the ripe age of 23. Many people say you're not even self-aware. You've not been across the emotional gamut enough to know 
what you would actually want in a spouse. And everything was good. I was in ministry at the time. We lived six months in a parsonage. I was on staff at a church, but I was still doing 18 hours of school, my last semester of school. So she was, you know, breadwinner of the family, working at the bank every day. Uh, we'd stay up 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock, she'd go to bed. I'd start my work till two or three. I'd get up at six, drive an hour to school, stay at school all day, come back. And so those first six months were very unique months. But what we started to realize is that, hey, about six months into this, we started discovering we are very different people. We, we just kind of came up. I'm type A extrovert, high strung, can be uber critical, particularly of myself. She's laid back. She has a really high, wide bandwidth for relationships. I call her the Fidelis one. She has such loyalty in relationships. And in that, we have driven each other crazy at times. I remember hearing during the early months, we're riding in the car and some guy, I don't know if it's John Tesh or whoever, hopped on the radio and he was gonna give some good marriage advice. And he said, his punchline was, hey, opposites attract, then attack. I'm like, that's encouraging, baby, isn't that awesome? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, just keep on sending that through the airways. Man, these these couples are gonna be amazed at your great, you know, opposite, what what does he say? Opposites attract, and then they attack. A year into the marriage, the electrical feelings started to fade. They started to dissipate. Now, in decades, uh, over a decade of pastoring, I have come to understand that that usually scares people, particularly the male in the relationship. And at this point in the relationship, the males begin to start having second thoughts, right? Many people say, hey, they're not self-aware at 21. Do you even know what you desire? We are different people. And people think at this time, what's wrong with us? Are we a fit? Are we not a fit? Did we get in it? Why did we do what we did? And when I'm counseling people in these moments, the spouse, guy or gal, usually guy is a wreck. But in reality, can I say it? Their marriage is fine because in hindsight, what most people's crisis of faith is in marriage is based on a faulty theology of marriage. So most of them, their marriage is fine, but 90% of the battle's in their head. That is to say the the crisis is happening is because they entered into the marital covenant with a faulty theology, a faulty understanding of marriage. I would argue, you can disagree, that the majority of people in our nation they, we know for the most part what def, the definition of marriage is, right? So we know what marriage is. Like even with the culture's desire to redefine marriage, this is what always blows my mind about Christians is we fight tooth and nail against the redefinition of marriage, right? And the culture is trying to redefine it. But very, very, very little, if any, is actually said about the purpose of marriage. So here it is in the 21st century, we know how to define it but we don't know what its intent is. We don't actually ever talk, and, and listen to people, they don't ever actually talk about the purpose of the marriage. It's all about debating the reality of the members and transgender communities and, and communications of gender identities, but not what marriage is for. We are hazy, if not clueless, as to what marriage is for. Another way I can ask this question is, what is the point of marriage? That's a legitimate question. For starters, half of all marriages implode. Okay, so 50% of marriages in the Western world, they implode, they don't make it, okay? So how many of us in this room are engaged, right? I see some engaged couples. I'm doing lots of premarital counseling right now. How about this for a great date night? This is a great date night exercise. You're at a romantic dinner spot. You take your coin, you're a quarter, take a coin, flip it up in the air, toss it up in the air, let it flip, call heads or tails in the air, grab it, slap it on your wrist, and then talk about how that is the exact odds you have of your marriage making it seven years. That's real romantic, isn't it? But that's the stats. 
Statistically, that's where we are. Statistically, that's what we're looking at. But seriously, honestly, why would anyone want to enter into that kind of risk? And the questions that we get from various young people is that. I mean, I, I get it, but why would I want to put myself out there for that type of return? Well, to me, that's where Genesis comes in. At the end of the book of Genesis, chapter, or, uh, the, the second chapter of Genesis, uh, we read about the first marriage of all time. Now, there's a stunning line here. I would like for us to read it together. Genesis 2 and 24. This is why, that is why, a man leaves his father and mother, and he leaves his free rent, and he leaves his video game system, and he leaves his mom's ability to do his laundry every day, and he leaves the capacity for someone to always crown him as a great son, which he will not receive as he moves into the marriage relationship, and he, and he leaves all what is very familiar from mom and dad, and is united to his wife, and they, husband and wife, become one flesh." Now, in the Hebrew, understand, this is what we call an interpolation, an interpolation. We know that this is God himself saying that this is marriage. And not only is it a one-off marriage, this is a paradigm for all marriages. Now, hear me, church. Over the next few years, you're going to have to argue this. I want you to hear me very clearly. People will not argue this issue. They will say, yes, God did that in the first marriage, but it's not paradigmatic for all marriages, okay? If you've not ever argued this before, it's just you've not engaged enough. I, I talk with people who believe that the book of Acts is the book of Acts. They just think it was the history's desire and the history's recording, but it's not prescriptive of what the church should do today. So you won't get people arguing this. You'll get people arguing the fact that whether or not this is actually supposed to be all future marriages. Is this actually paradigmatic? Well, in Hebrew, this is what we call an interpolation, meaning God is saying to us, this is a template. Now you say, Craig, how do you know that? Look at the text. Let's think critically for a moment. This is why a man leaves his father and mother. Da-da. Adam didn't have a mom and dad. Hear, hear me. This is really important textually. He did not have a mom and dad. Next one. And is united to his wife. Eve did not have any other choice. There's no other male on the planet. <laughs> Meaning this text, watch, watch this, is written to be a paradigm from God for a theology of marriage. Are you with me? The writer Moses is writing this text in such a way to get you to pause, to stop, reflect, and think that this is ground zero for a theology on marriage. The key again is in verse 24. That is why. That is why a man leaves his father and mother. Time out. What is why? What is why? For what reason? Is this, this, this text, go back just one slide, can be translated, for that is the reason a man... What reason? What is why? I don't understand. I missed something in the text. That is why. What do you mean, what is why? What is, what, what, what is the reason why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife? Here it is, folks. The first three, 23 verses of Genesis 2 tell us why verse 24 is 24. So as I see it, as I see it, in the Genesis story, there are four reasons that God created marriage. And all four answer the question, what's the point of marriage? Let's talk about them. Number one. The number one purpose of marriage is friendship. Friendship. Look at verse 18. The Bible says in verse 18, powerful. And the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper 
suitable for him. Now for you Bible nerds, Genesis 1 and 2 are written in what we call semi-poetic language. And all the way through, there's a refrain in the poetry. And the refrain is this. At the end of the day, God stepped back and God saw that it was good. Next day happens and God stepped back and he saw that it was good. Next day happens, God stepped back and he saw that it was good. But then God made Adam and he basically said, whoops, it's not good. That's what he said. No sin has entered the world, and God said in perfect utopian society, something's not good, and no entrance of evil. God is declaring by his own admission, something's not right, something's not good. If every other day it's good, if all creation is good, but then Adam, it's not good. Why is it not good, God? Because it's not good for man to be alone. Well, well not. why not, why not? Short answer is because human beings are made in God's image and human beings are made in God's likeness. That means we are called to image God. That means we are called to mirror God. That means we are called to mimic God, what God is like to the world. Hear me, hear me. If the God I know is not the God he is, then the God I make known will not be the God he wants to be known as. Meaning, if the God I know is not the God he is, then the God I make known will not be the God he wants others to think he is. Are you with me? This matters. As image bearers of God, he says, I, I exist in this web of life-giving relationships. Now, here's the problem. Adam can't reflect God's image by himself. He can't do it. It's an impossibility. So God says, What? I live and exist in this web of life-giving relationships. Early on in the story, we see where God says in Genesis 1:26, let us, God said, let us make man in our own image. Now, there's all kinds of debate in theology about the us. A lot of people say God's talking to the angelic host. I tend to believe that God is talking to himself. God is saying to himself, you say, what do you mean? Well, rabbi, the rabbi, the teacher, the Messiah, Jesus later would tell us in the New Testament that God exists in a trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All we know right here is that God is in community. God's not alone. Hear me. Listen, church. Every problem you have in life is normally the result of you rebelling against the image of God. Loneliness is the one problem in life you have because you are made in the image of God. Loneliness is a result of being in God's image. There's no other way to interpret that theologically. So what does God say? He said, it's not good that you would be isolated and alone. Now, I don't know about you, but I cannot tell you the amount of times I've heard people say, you know what? All you need is God, especially to single people. Any single people heard that before? We like to say to single people, all you need is God. Well, listen, that sounds really great. And that makes for a great, nice little worship lyric. The only problem is, A, it's not true, and B, God never said it. Hear me, Adam is in the Garden of Eden with God every day, walking with him as much as he wants in the afternoon, and it's not enough. It's not enough. <laughs> this, this, this is mind-boggling. God said it's not enough for you and I just to be together. It's not enough for us just to be walking in the afternoon together. So what does God say? I must make a helper 
suitable for him. Now listen to me. I want you to hear me. That does not mean that you have to get married. There are other ways to live in community. Jesus was single. Paul was single. Lest you think, I don't care about that. I know the world we live in. Go back to our podcast, February of last year. I spent 55 minutes talking about the value of singleness in God's kingdom, okay? Jesus was single. Paul was single. It is a fascinating idea to stay single if you can, if you're a Christian. It's a fascinating, amazing, amazing calling, okay? But hear me. For followers of Jesus Christ even, singleness, whether being single or married, we were created for community. We were created for relationship. And God is saying, what better way to do that than with marriage? Now, there's a great line in the Hebrew, uh, what we call uh, wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs chapter 2, where it says a man's wife or his spouse is his eloop. Eloop. Eloop can be translated closest friend, best friend, or companion. A man's spouse is his companion. And isn't that what your spouse is supposed to be? Just that. Your spouse is supposed to be your best or your closest friend, your companion. That's one of the reasons God created marriage. He created it for friendship. For friendship. For you to walk through life with someone. God created Meredith. God created Craig. So that we're not alone, but to live in relationship and community with one another. And listen to me, guys. Listen to me. That your spouse is supposed to be your primary relationship. Not after the guys. Not after your video game system. Not after any of your other desires or ambitions. Your spouse is supposed to be your primary relationship. The one who knows you better than anyone else on the planet. Listen to me, husbands. You should know your wife better than your, your wife's mom knows her. Listen to me, wives. You should know your husband better than his mom knows him or his dad knows him. We're to know each other better than anyone else on the planet. To know and to be known is the most powerful human experience on this planet. I tell people all the time in counseling, you can only be loved to the extent you are known. Meaning if you're holding a secret from your wife or your husband, don't expect them to love that part of your dysfunction out of you. They can only love what you reveal. See, this is what people, they start blaming their spouse for not loving well enough, but you haven't showed them that part to love. They can only love what they see. If they don't know a part, they can't love it. So if I hold away from my spouse something they don't see, they can't love that part out of me. They can't rub that shame out of me. They can't love me in my imperfection. Why? Because they don't know that imperfection. I'm only loved to the extent that I'm fully known, fully revealed to another human being. I mean, my wife knows my whole laundry list of character defects, and it's a long list. Some of you think I'm joking, I'm not. It's a long list, and she loves me despite it. She loves me in spite of my issues. She still believes in me even when I don't believe in me. She wants to spend time with me, which is borderline psychotic, okay? She wants to actually hang out with me and talk with me and enjoy me and communicate with me. One of my favorite things about marriage, hands down, hands down, is she's my wife, she's my best friend, and there is nothing like waking up every morning next to Meredith Mosgrove knowing no matter what the day throws at me, I am not alone. I am not alone. I'm walking hand in hand with a friend. Now hear me. Friendship is one of the most forgotten elements of marriage in our world today. Many of us, we probably recognize, oh yeah, your spouse is supposed to be your friend, but you really see attraction and passion and romance as the core of the marriage. No, no, no. If anything, here's what our culture thinks, that, that marriage is primarily romance spiced with a little friendship. But biblically, marriage is friendship spiced with a little sex, spiced with a little romance. 
If you wanna be in a marriage that's endearing, if you wanna be in a marriage that's enduring, friendship has to be the core basis. One respected sociologist I read gone, he says this. He says, the determining factor in whether wives feel satisfied with sex, romance, and passion in their marriage is by 70% the quality of that couple's friendship. For men, the determining factor in all of those things is by 70% the quality of the couple's friendship. So look what he concludes. So men and women come from the same planet after all. Proverbs 2.7 calls your your spouse, your aloop, your best friend. This is what Paul espouses in Ephesians 5. He talks about your spouse being in this body language, that friendship is about the analogy of the body. That to me is a very fascinating thing because in one sense, we can think of our body as separate from us. But, but in the other sense, we can't. I'm one with my own body, right? I am united to my body. My wife is in one sense separate from me, yet she's one with me. We right now have fused our entire lives together. All of our dreams, all of our calling, all of our house that we move in in 10 days, all of our finances, all of our dreams, all of our calling, all of the passions we have in life, what we call and what we feel called to and friendships and desires and ambition, we have fused it all together. We are operating as one, yet at the same time, She is separate from me. That's marriage, becoming one. In fact, when Adam saw Eve in the garden, he said, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Think about how theologically powerful that is. It's like he's saying, I see a part of who I am. Did you know that's what, that's what, that's what Adam said? I, marriage is a mirror. So if I, if I get mirrored back to me that I'm dysfunctional, I think I can leave the spouse to go get a new spouse. The problem is that spouse is a mirror too. And you can't escape you. I can't escape me. And that's what, that's what Adam is saying. He looks at his spouse and says, it looks like me. It looks like my bones. Hey, that looks like my flesh. She's mirroring back to me who I really am. He didn't say, wow, what a hot babe. Wow, what an amazing specimen of humanity. No, he said, I see a piece of my own soul. And I see a piece of my own body right there in that woman. That's what a friendship is. Secondly, a friendship is a shared common goal. Friendship is around a shared common cause. Listen to me. Meredith and I have been assigned to help each other in the greatest of all pursuits, and that's preparation for glory. We are preparing for glory. I want you to hear me. That's our greatest passion. That's our marriage's greatest passion, to prepare to see Jesus, and we are assigned to one another to help make that happen. C.S. Lewis says there's a kind of love that you look at a spouse in the eyes. It's called eros love, where you're focused on each other face to face. But he said, if you want marriage love, you must move to phileo. Phileo is when you turn sideways and you are side by side absorbed in a common interest. That's friendship. You can only stare at each other in the eyes for so long at Starbucks before you have to get up and do something with your marriage and build something and engage in God's cultivation and God's desire on the earth. That is friendship, friendship. And even when you get tired of your spouse or you're irritated, you want a new one, you realize, listen to me, the new spouse I want is this spouse in their glorified state. That's the real spouse I want. You see them for what they are, but what they could, not what they are, but what they could be. And one day I will see Meredith in heaven and all her glorified beauty. And I will say, I knew it, babe. I knew you could always be that. And it's my honor to move her towards that destination here. That's our shared common cause. You ever heard of the proverbial story about Michelangelo who was asked how he could carve such a magnificent statue, a horse from a block of stone? 
Here's what he said. He said, I just see the horse in the stone and chip away at everything that's not the horse. Do you know what marriage is? You see the glorified spouse and you chip away at everything that's not glorified. You don't switch spouses. You don't go to another spouse. You don't look for it in another relationship. You look for it in the relationship God's given you. Number one, purpose of marriage is friendship. Number two, the second is what we call gardening. Gardening. As I see it in Genesis 4, or Genesis 2, the second part of marriage or intention of marriage is gardening. Now, I mean this in a metaphoric sense. Some of you are like, dear Jesus, I have no green thumbs. I need to leave the sermon now. Okay, look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. To work it and take care of it. If you know the story, the garden is gigantic. This is not the size of a park. This is not Tampa Bay, Tampa, you know, Tampa Bay Bush Gardens. This is like the size of a nation. Some people, historians say it's the size of a small continent, the Garden of Eden. This is too much for one man to work. He needs help to do what God's called him to do. In the language of chapter one, Adam is to rule over the earth and that's why God created Eve and out of that, God created marriage. Verse 18, he is to make a helper suitable for him. I will make a helper. Everybody say helper. Now hear me. The Hebrew word helper is the word azare. Azare. It sounds a bit derogatory in English, but it's not. Oh, I know what God did. God made Adam a personal assistant. No, 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 no. Azare means this. It means one who comes alongside to help. If you read the Psalms, God is called humanity's Azare. Yahweh is my Azare. Do we think that the writers of scripture would call God a personal assistant to a human? No, this is the highest, utmost respectful term. A helper is not derogatory in any sense. If anything, I would say the spouse is a higher level theologically. This is also used in the Old Testament where, where Israel is gonna be crushed by an army. You know what God says? I'm gonna bring in another army that is your Azare, the reinforcements to keep you from being decimated here on these plains. Yahweh is my Azare, he's my Azare. So helper is not an employee. It is an equal. Twice we read in verse 18 that he was gonna make a helper suitable. Suitable, suitable, suitable. That means it's on the same level. She's made from Adam's side. If you're a skeptic like me, you read texts like that and you're like, is this narrative language or is this poetry language? Is this literal or is this not literal? Do we actually believe God put him to sleep, anesthesia took out a rib and made? Or is this talking about side by side? Is this poetic, is this narrative? What's going on in the narratives? What, what, what is happening in the creation story? The idea is this. They are shoulder to shoulder. They are side to side, not in front, not behind, not below, not above. They are side to side equal. A helper is someone you love. A helper is someone you respect that comes alongside as a partner and as an ally all for the sake of gardening. I would argue that everyone, male or female, needs a gardening project. Let me put it another way, you ready? Everyone needs a calling in life. Everyone needs a sense of this is what I'm called to do. Everyone needs a sense of this is what I'm good at. This is what I'm passionate about. This is how God's created me. This is how God has gifted me. This is my corner of the garden and this is what I'm gonna rule over and this is what I'm gonna cultivate. This is what God spread in front of me. Church, individually, what is your calling? What is your gardening project? You must answer that question or else in time, your marriage will come off its wheels. 
Here's why, and it's the strongest thing I could tell to you today. All healthy marriages are built around a calling. If the point of your marriage is your marriage, it will collapse on itself. If the point of your dating relationship is your dating relationship, it won't make it. Hear me, if the point of your friendship is the friendship, it will not make it. God does not allow it. If the point of my marriage is my marriage, it won't make it. If the point of my friendship is just my friendship, it will not make it. It will collapse in on itself. You can only sit at a coffee shop and stare at each other in the eyes before so long you've got to stand up and you've got to go out and do something. You've got to say, this is what God has called us to cultivate in a garden-like existence. This is where we are to put our hands. Now, I know, I know, I know, I know this raises as many questions as it gives answers. Well, Craig, what if I have no clue about my calling? Well, what if I don't know my calling? Well, let me just say for starters, if you don't know your calling, then don't get married. Why would you go get married if you don't know your calling because you don't know if your calling complements that person's calling. You, you really can't get married till you know your calling. You can't adequately know how our calling garden, how, how do we garden together? How, what is our part of the world? How are we gonna, what authority has God given me? What if, what if people are different? What if my spouse's calling is different from my calling? What if we get married and we get married outside of Jesus and then we get married and then we get, find Jesus and now we discover our calling. I understand that. That's a whole other teaching series, but here's my point for today. You ready? Marriage is a means to an end, not the end in itself. Marriage is temporary. Christ and his church are eternal. Marriage is temporal. Marriage can't be about marriage. Marriage must be about friendship. Marriage needs to be about gardening. Gardening. It should exist for something larger than itself. So at the risk of sounding off, are you ready? Sisters, don't marry a man without a gardening project. Brothers, are you ready? At the risk of sounding off, don't you dare marry a woman that doesn't have a gardening project without a sense. Listen, ladies, if you, if you look at a man and you don't have a sense, he doesn't have a sense of what God's called him to and what God has made him for, no matter how handsome or sexy or charming or romantic or well-off or spontaneous or how good he is with his words, none of that matters. If his life is not a gardener, hear me, if his life is not about something more than his life, how can you join him in any kind of project? You will only join him to make him more selfish. That's all you will serve. If he doesn't have a gardening project, if he doesn't have a sense of what he's called to, if he doesn't have a sense of where he's called to rule and to reign and give authority, how will you ever come alongside and join him in something larger than your marriage? And brothers, listen to me. Don't marry a woman that doesn't want to be your heir. And that doesn't mean your personal assistant. Hear me, don't twist my words. I'm not saying women gotta stay at home, be in the kitchen, and get in person. No, 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 I didn't say any of that. I'm just saying to my brothers, listen to me, don't marry a woman who doesn't want to come alongside you with a shared life, no matter how smart or sexy or funny or interesting she is. If she doesn't want to partner with you, how will your marriage ever be about more than your marriage? It won't. Now, feel free to disagree with me. You can. But as I see Genesis 2, I see this. I see a man willing to lead, not boss around, and not domineer a wife. But a, 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 a man who wants to step forward and take in responsibility and risk. And I see a woman who's called to be his equal, side by side, rib to rib, to be with him, to go do whatever God has called them to do together, to go cultivate a garden. Listen to me. If your marriage is not about more than your marriage, hear me. 
It's only a matter of time where your marriage will get boring and you will ask, is there someone more sexy? Is there someone more interesting? Is there someone, is there someone that gives me those electrical feelings again? Why? Because your marriage was just about your marriage. Now, don't forget. People say, well, I'm single and I feel called to be single. Hear me. Every time you pray, you pray to a 33-year-old single. Singleness is not an inferior state to marriage. Marriage is not ultimate. Christ is ultimate. Church is ultimate. So this can be met in all kinds of other ways. But if we are married, it's about gardening. It's about cultivating our part of the world. And it's inevitable because it's implanted within our humanness because one of the reasons God made marriage is that there was a garden that needed work and Adam could not get it done. And nothing has changed in thousands of years. Now, we don't live in a garden anymore. We'll get to that in a minute. But Meredith and I are to link arms and go make an Eden-like world. Here's the third thing. Third reason God made marriage is our sexuality. Sexuality. Our sexuality. Look at verse 25, last verse of the chapter. And Adam and his wife were both naked. In Tennessee, we say naked, N-E-C-K-E-D. Naked. They were both naked and they felt no shame. Y'all, two young, amorous, naked people in a garden. Sounds like reality TV gone bad. I said that in the earlier service, and somebody said, reality TV gone good. I thought, amen, sister. But it's the first love story in the scriptures. They were friends, they were partners, but they were also lovers. Now listen, the risk of sounding simple. God created the human body, and he created all of the human body, every part of it. I doubt God looked down from the garden and saw Adam and Eve messing around behind the tree and said, what the heck? That's not what those are made for. How did you know that went there? How did that? Are you kidding me? He's God. He knows what every part belongs, how it moves, how it, he knows all, he knows the whole human body and he made it to work, which is a whole nother sermon. Because it, it's got to be natural. It's got to be even anatomical in the way that God made the bodies. That's a whole conversation for our current culture. Okay, but, but, but think about that. God says sexuality is my own creation. It's a part of our humanity. Now listen, not only did God create your sexuality, he also created marriage as the context for you to express your sexuality with joy and with love and delight and humility and pleasure and faithfulness and safety and trust and intimacy. And the inverse is also true. Listen to me, married couples. He created sexuality as the glue, hear me, the bonding agent for your marriage to stay close and healthy for you to stay one flesh. Now, I know some pastors take this and they go off and do all these sex challenges. I think it's in some ways inappropriate, but I will tell you, listen, you should be having sex. Why? Because it is one of the ways that God makes you one flesh. One flesh. Now, that doesn't mean, again, you have to marry to get married or you gotta get married if you're single. Your desire for sex is not the same need as your need for food and drink. You don't have to get married. You don't have to have sex to live a fulfilled life. Jesus was single, lived a fulfilled life. But if you want to get married in order to have sex, listen to me, that's not bad or embarrassing. Now, I would say it, it doesn't need to be the only reason, but it's not bad or, or embarrassing. We think it's bad. Oh, I want to get married because I want to have sex. No, that's why you want to have sex. It's because God created that in you, your sexuality for marriage. I mean, it's as simple as that. It's as simple as that because it's one of the reasons 
God created marriage in the beginning. Now, in our culture, there are three major myths about sex that our culture is trying to hold up. And they want to believe to their deathbed. I'm going to take a few moments and just kind of disarm those three myths. Jesus in Matthew 19, he makes very clear that one of man's primary soul needs is the need for companionship. It's not good for man to be alone. And the experience of marriage, we would get a taste of the love that God has for us. Here's the first lie that our culture is trying to believe is that sex is just physical. Sex is just physical, meaning it's biological urge, just like any other urge. People say sex is kind of like food. You get hungry, you eat. The newest thing is that sex is like a sport. You find a partner to play with for a while, later you switch up partners. It's like tennis. It's like touch football, or better yet, tackle football, where you tackle somebody and just stay on the ground for a while. (laughs) So thank you. I needed one laugh. That helps. So someone says, someone says, I don't know him that well or her that well. We just had fun for a while. No big deal. No strings attached. It was just a harmless little affair to break up the monotony. It's nothing serious. It's like Katy Perry said in one of her songs, I don't even know your name. Doesn't matter. You're my experiment game. It's just human nature. Some of you say, how do you know Katy Perry songs? That's why you pay me to be your pastor, okay? (laughs) To stay up with the culture. Woody Allen said, I know sex without love is an empty experience. But I gotta tell you, as empty experiences go, it's one of the best. People think, what's the big deal if we have a little fun? But most everybody, even if they hold that myth, they know deep down that it's not true. Just ask yourself, why is it that many people's greatest regrets in life are sexual? When someone comes to me after service and they say, Pastor, I need to talk to somebody. I've never told anyone this before. I know what it's going to be about. It will not be I cheated as a sophomore in math class. (laughs) Why? Because the deepest shame is connected to sexuality because it's more than just physical. It's more than just physical. If sex is just physical, why is it that when a child is sexually abused and when they're an adult and finally connect the dots, it's so difficult to shake off? Oh, no, that's just an authority figure let them down. No, it's deeper than that. If sex is just physical, why is adultery so hard to get over? Just forgive them. It's no big deal. They just had sex. If sex is just physical, why is it that men with the deepest sexual issues usually had uninvolved or missing fathers? If sex is just physical, why is rape so much more psychologically damaging than physical violence? And the National Domestic Violence Center says that women are four times more prone to report physical abuse than rape. They'll say he beat me, but they won't say he raped me. If it's just physical, why not? Because it's not just physical. And that's what Jesus points to in Matthew chapter 19. Marriage and sex were designed by God to address the deepest needs of the human soul. Next slide, listen to me. Sex is supposed to be the ultimate expression of the marriage relationship, meaning it's not just a physical act, it's a soul act. Sex is more spiritual mystery than it even is biological necessity. It's a mystery. It's as the two become one flesh. Here's a second myth about sex is that sex can be casual. If sex is just physical, it can be casual. It's not that serious. Well, here's what Ed Vox said. Ed of Vox, he said, the question used to be how many times you could go out on a date before having sex. Now in America, it's how many times you can have sex before you feel like you need to go out on a date. How many times can I have sex with her before I have to pay for her meal? That's Western culture. 
So Paul goes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and he's saying, hey, don't you know that your body who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? And Paul's illustration for sexual immorality is sex with a prostitute, which is the cheapest kind of sex imaginable. It's, it's with a stranger. It involves no commitment. You'll never see each other again. But Paul says, even in that 30-minute exchange or encounter with that body, something is bonding. Something's bonding. Years ago, I read a book called Hooked. It's written by a couple of neurologists, not pastors. It has no theological agenda. And it shows the effects of having multiple sexual partners or multiple sexual encounters or porn. And what they're talking about in here is how it rewires the brain to make genuine, lasting, selfless relationships much more difficult. This is what they say. The individual who goes from sex partner to sex partner is causing his or her brain to mold in a way that eventually accepts that pattern as normal. The pattern of changing sex partners therefore seems to damage their ability to bond in a committed relationship. The kind of attachment damage that occurs after repeated sexual encounters is in many respects more pernicious than pregnancy or STDs because it typically goes unperceived by affected individuals while causing ongoing difficulties in establishing lifelong and satisfying relationships. And the authors use the, me- the metaphor of tape. If you take tape and stick it to your arm and then pull it off, it loses stickiness. And then you do it again and less stickiness and less stickiness. And then by the time you're ready to settle down with a spouse, you got no stick. You got no stick. You've been rewired to not have your stickiness stick. So I put, you can no more try out sex than you can try out birth. Because the very act of sex creates a new reality that cannot be undone. Y'all, safe sex is a joke. You can't put a condom on your soul. I have seen no one selling soul condoms. None. And so people say, well, we're going to the high schools and we're going to talk to them about STDs and pregnancy and abortions. Those are all good reasons to, to, to keep away from sex outside of marriage, but they're not the primary reason God tells us to not have sex outside of marriage. It has to do with our souls, the condition of our souls. This is what Tim Keller said in The Meaning of Marriage. He said, even if you're legally married, if you're not legally married when you're having sex, you might find yourself while you're having sex with them get quick, feel very quickly marriage-like ties, feeling that that other person has obligations to you. Watch this. But the other person has no legal, social, or moral responsibility even to call you back tomorrow morning. This incongruity leads to jealousy and hurt feelings and obsessiveness if two people are having sex but are not married. It makes breaking up vastly harder than it should be. It leads many people to stay trapped in relationships for life that are not good because of a feeling of having somehow connected themselves in intercourse. So many people say, well, Christians are anti-sex. Like we don't appreciate it enough. It's the exact opposite. We understand the prescriptions God gives for sex because we know how powerful sex is. So if you followed me on Instagram, you saw I had a lot of questions off of this statement this week. I put out there, sex outside of marriage is not a sin because it's bad, but because it's so good. What are you saying, Craig? The analogy I use here is fire. Fire is an incredibly powerful force, capable of good or bad. Do you want a fire in your house? The fire in the fireplace is awesome. Anybody want a fire in their sofa? You want a fire in your kitchen sink? A fire in your bed? So what I'm saying is that it has tremendous power and out of proper context, it can be destructive. So in proper context, it will warm up your marriage. But if it ember gets outside the fireplace, the whole house will burn down, the whole house. So that's why God says very clearly, sex is for marriage. Here's the third and final myth about marriage or sex is that sex is the best part of life. It's the best part of life. Well, Jesus says the opposite. In Matthew 19, he says, there are some to be called eunuchs. 
some who take the vow, some have been made eunuchs. And soon enough in eternity, listen, none of us will be married. That which is partial and temporary will be given way to what's permanent and eternal. We were driving to school last week, and that blew my eight-year-old's mind. Marley was having a hard time with that. Said, babe, we're, me and mom will not be married in the kingdom. What, I don't understand. And she don't know about the sex. We hadn't got there. We have with my 11, but not my eight yet. So she, I'm like, yeah, I know it sounds crazy, but I'm going to know and be intimate with all of my other sisters in Christ as much as I am with mom in the new kingdom. That just... Why? Because marriage is temporal. Christ and his church are eternal. They're eternal. Just a dress rehearsal. It's just a picture, a testimony to the world of God's goodness and grace in the gospel. Here's the fourth reason I see for marriage, and that's family in the garden. So friendship, gardening, sexuality, family. If you look in Genesis chapter 2, early on in chapter 1, God said, Be fruitful and increase, fill the earth. And look at Genesis 128. Isn't it amazing? The first command in the Bible is not thou shalt not. The first command in the Bible is thou shalt. And what shall you do? Make babies. Make love. Make a lot of babies. Y'all, I'm into this God. He gets me from page one. <laughs> make love. That's what he's saying. God is into the family. In Genesis, family is the building block of society. All through scripture, God is the father. We are the sons. We are the daughters. We are brothers. We are sisters. What? Family is at the heart of God's vision for the world. And just like marriage must be more than about marriage, family must be more than about family. Dad, I can't just say my family is about my family. My family is about a testimony and a witness to the world of what Christ does in the home. Okay? So that means it's got to be bigger than just my family or bigger than just my marriage. There are other ways to fulfill this. Some people can't have kids. I understand that. One of the ways you can do that is through fostering. Another way you can do this is through adoption, okay, to fulfill this family desire. But it does mean that family is one of the reasons God created marriage. So there you have it. The reasons we walk down the aisle and say, till death do us part. Friendship, gardening, sexuality, family. Here's the problem. We don't live in Eden anymore. Surprise. And this is short-lived because Genesis 2.25, they were naked and not ashamed. And the very next verse, chapter 3, verse 1, here comes humanity with the fall. The fall. They have the first humans had the attention span of two-year-olds hyped up on pixie sticks. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it was gone in an instant. And what happened? Sin came into the world and Adam and Eve sinned. And guess where the first place sin wreaks havoc? The marriage. The marriage. The, the marriage is the first place where sin has its way. In Genesis 3.11, God said, Who told you that you were naked, Adam and Eve? All innocence is gone. Rebellion has happened. And the man, verse 6, blame shifts. Not only does he sound like a six-year-old, ladies, it sets up a bad expectation. He says, the woman, she gave me the food, which tells us the women were in the kitchen from the outset. You know what I'm saying? I was in front of the game. I'm God, I'm not responsible. She brought me the TV tray. I'm watching Tennessee football. She gave me the, the fruit. I mean, I mean, he sounds like a six-year-old. That's what Adam sounds like in Genesis. And, and right there, you have the birth of the first sitcom marriage. You say, that's a little bit much. No, sarcasm, sin, bitterness, blame-shifting, hard heart. Jesus in Luke 19 says, no, no divorce will happen unless one of the spouse's hearts gets hard. Hardness of heart has to happen on one or both for that thing to go the opposite direction. Hardness of heart. 
So now fast forward thousands of years, we're the sons of Adam, we're the sons of Eve, we're bent towards sin. But the gospel good news, y'all, is that Jesus has an agenda to fix it and to fix it all. He wants to remake the world into a garden-like place. But watch this. Jesus is starting his work in the here and now with his followers, with you and me. He's going to ultimately one day remake all of it, but he says, hey, I'm gonna start right now with my new creation. Paul says this stunning line in 2 Corinthians 5 and 17. He said, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, the new creation, what's that? The future new made world. The future new made world is breaking into this world through your born again experience. God says, what I'm one day gonna do for the whole cosmos, I'm gonna start in you today. What I'm one day gonna do for every T cell, every black hole, every galaxy that's out of alignment, every planet that's off one iota. I'm gonna backtrack in time and I'm gonna start now with the salvation salvation of your souls. The new creation, the new made world has broken into our current reality. And yes, you are born again in your spirit. That is dramatic. That is dramatic. You are fused with Christ, but then you are set on a trajectory at the same time for Jesus to remake you. And what Jesus will one day do for the entire cosmos, Jesus starts with with you and me right now. Now, some of you thinking, what does that have to do with marriage? Everything. For starters, it blows up the idea of the one. Out there, somewhere, is your missing half to complete you. No, God's recreating you. He's not interested in completing you through a person. The new made world is breaking into your experience. He is remaking you. Tim Keller said in The Meaning of Marriage, he makes the point of how every other person on the planet at some level is a bad match for you. It's this, that hopefully you marry someone who's less of a bad match for you than all the others. That is so true. Listen, at one level, my wife and I, we are perfect, y'all. It's almost like God stopped and thought it up. She has strengths that I'll never have. She has strengths that I will never have. And at another level, we are opposites. We are not a good fit. We drive each other crazy. But I will tell you, the driving each other crazy and the not good fit is good. You say, Craig, how can it be good? Because I would argue in the wake of the fall, God added a fifth purpose of marriage. Tricked you, didn't I? Genesis 2 has four, but now the New Testament gives a fifth. And the fifth purpose of marriage is to recreate you. Recreation. You say, Craig, what do you mean? Marriage is the context, and I want to argue the number one context for you to become more like Jesus if you're married. It's the number one context. For Jesus to do his creative work in you, your wife. I know my wife brings out the best in me. She has an uncanny ability to see what God had in mind when he made me. She can present it. She can say it. She can speak to it and say, that is actually who you are, Craig. Maybe you're not acting like that today, but that's who God made you to be and to call me who I really am, which is higher than where I am today. But my wife also brings out the worst in me. Now, it's not my wife. If it wasn't Meredith, it would be somebody else meaning living in close proximity to another person brings out the worst in me. Listen to me, because it exposes what Paul calls the flesh. Hear me, marriage does not create problems, it exposes problems. That's all it does. Marriage exposes what is in me, good or bad. Singles thing, well, when I get married, then dot, 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 dot. When I get married, dot, 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 no. Listen, if you're not happy you single, you will not be happy married. I don't know how it's to say it. If you, if you deal with porn single, I don't know how it's to say it, guys and girls. I'm not the bleak guy. I'm just the honest guy. Your spouse will deal with porn in marriage. 
unless something happens. I don't know how else to say it clearly. If you are selfish before marriage, you will be selfish in marriage. Marriage doesn't create it, it exposes it. They don't go away. You know what? When I got married, I thought I was a pretty fantastic guy. Turns out I'm not. I'm uber critical. I'm selfish. I'm negligent to my wife. I'm emotionally absent on many days I feel stressed. I'm emotionally absent from my kids and negligent in ways that I didn't think I would ever be. I am messed up. I am in need of grace. I am in need of mercy. And the worst sins in Craig Mosgrove's life are not done against Dwelling Place Church. They're done against Meredith Ann Mosgrove. And yet she loves me, she cares for me, she keeps serving, she's my gardening partner, she's my friend, we express our sexuality one with another, we are people who are building a family, and Mary and I are now almost 14 years in, which is fantastic, y'all, because we made it to the seven-year mark twice, okay? Twice, they say if you make it seven years, you've made the first barrier. And I have failed multiple times, and I have failed my wife, okay? I've not been unfaithful to my wife, but I have failed my wife in many, many ways. And here we are 14 years in now, and there have been low points in our marriage, but we are so invested in this thing. There is so much capital in this thing. There are so many lives that have been impacted because of this thing. There is so much bandwidth in this thing. I would not trade it for the world. My marriage has shaped me into who I am. My marriage has shaped Meredith into the person she is. My marriage has shaped kids to grow up in a home who know Jesus and love Jesus. I don't care. I am not walking away from this thing for anything. I don't care if it's another second body. I don't care if it's another person trying to make a move. I am invested in this thing. Something needs to happen in the Western church where we get some, you know what I'm talking about, and get some tenacity to say, we are in this for the long haul. We're in it for the long haul. We're invested. We've got capital in this thing. The lack of the presumption of the permanence of marriage is killing our culture. And we, the church, are falling into the same thing. We've got to see, God, what is the purpose? What is? Let's step back. What is the purpose? Friendship, gardening, sexuality, family, and then in the wake of the fall, recreation. Now, here's the problem. That's not why most people get married. You know why most people get married? Happiness. Millions and millions of Americans get married to be happy. Now, that sounds romantic, but that is a marriage killer in disguise. Hear me, the problem with that is that happiness is not a reason for marriage. It's only a result of marriage. If a marriage is healthy, happiness is a byproduct, but it's not the reason you walk down the aisle. Y'all, I cringe when I'm at a wedding and the guy in the mic, in the mic, in the mic, with tears flowing down his face, looks at her in the eyes and says, I promise, honey, to make you happy. I want to stand up and say, take it back. That's a lie. It's a lie, y'all. You can't make someone happy. You are not God. You can't make another human happy. I don't know how else to say it. You are not God. That is a stunning human being, but she is not Jesus. God is God. Meredith is not God. And if I make her become the vessel whereby I'm happy, I will suffocate any God-given potential in our relationship. Because that's not why God brought Meredith into my life, not to make me happy. It's to make me holy. And here's the good thing. If I see my marriage like that, then when happiness, if and when it does come, woo, it's icing on the cake. But it's not the reason. It's not the reason. It's not the reason. So that's why people start second-guessing a year into this thing because they have a faulty theology of what marriage is all about. If we take marriage, which is a good thing, and make it an ultimate thing, 
we kill it. We mess it up. Is it any wonder then the number one justification for divorce in America is that you deserve to be happy? I've heard it dozens of times. If you put your faith in your spouse to make you happy, it's only a matter of time, and I'd say probably two weeks or less, till they let you down. Singles, I see a lot of single faces. You've got to get this before you get married. You've got to get this before you get married. You gotta get it embedded in your heart and your soul. Now, Craig, are you being bleak? No. I'm not saying you can't be happy in marriage. I'm happy in my marriage. The greatest memories of my life have Meredith Mosgrove in them. Moving to Atlanta, Georgia, replanting a church, moving to Chattanooga, Tennessee, serving other folks, pastoring other people. The day my firstborn was son, Knox. Woo, every emotion flooded my soul in 2010. Listen, she is in all of my greatest. If you edit Meredith out of my life, my life is flat, it's dull, it's banal, it's anemic. But I've learned in marriage, God is the source of my life. God is God, not Meredith. And here is the upside of this having happiness as a byproduct. You can realize your spouse will never be good enough, no matter how charming, amazing, sexy, awesome, spontaneous they are. So what does all this mean? For both singles and married, here's what it means. Come on, team. I think we make three mistakes in our culture. I think we go into it for the wrong reasons, we ask the wrong questions, and we rate the wrong person. What do you mean? We go into it for the wrong reasons. We go into it for happiness. We go into it for self-fulfillment. Good luck with that. (laughs) Good luck going into marriage for self-gratification. Good luck, right? We go into it for all all the wrong reasons. Secondly, we ask the wrong questions. We say, am I happy? Does she make me happy? Does he make me happy? Do I feel the way I used to? Is my electrical feeling still there? Do I feel like we felt like when we were dating? Do I enjoy sex? Does he look like what I want him to look like? Does she look like what I want her to look like? No, those are wrong questions. Here's the right questions. First of all, are we friends? Are we best friends? Do we talk? Do we go out on dates? Do we communicate about life? Secondly, are we workers? Is our marriage about more than just our marriage? Are we gardening? Are we cultivating anything? Are we putting our hands together? Are we side by side? Are we making our marriage about something more than our marriage? Or is it about us and our house and our money? Thirdly, man, are we lovers? Do we, do we bond and rebond through sex over and over again on a regular basis? You define what regular basis is. Every couple is different, but do we do that regularly? Do we rebond time and time again? Fourthly, are we a family? Are we raising sons and daughters in the kingdom of God? Are we raising them for God's purposes and His desire? And then lastly, you ready? Is Jesus using our marriage to make us look more like Him? Wow, what a question. Is He using our marriage to recreate us? Is Jesus using the good stuff and the bad stuff, the parts where we're perfect fit and the parts where we are like, what were we thinking? And then lastly, we rate the wrong person. It's not friendship. Is she a good friend to me? Mm -mm. It's am I a good friend to her? Gardening. It's not, is she a good partner for me? No, it's am I a good partner for her? It's not, "Ah, do I enjoy sex with her? It's no, does she enjoy it with me? Is it pleasurable? Is is, is when I have sex with her fun for her? Is when I have sex with her life-giving to her? Not just me, not my needs, Matt, but is is it giving her life? Is it, make, is it giving her pleasure? See, we rate the wrong person. Then family. We say, family, well, you know what? Are we, uh, 
raising our kids for us? No, 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 wrong question. Are we raising our kids to bless and to thrive and to affect the world around us? Because if you go into marriage chasing the wrong thing, then at best, it will prime you for disillusionment and at worst, it will set you up for divorce. And if you're sitting here thinking today, my spouse really needs to hear this message, you are missing the point. You're missing the point. Because this is about you. This is about rating the right person, not the wrong person. But the reciprocal of that is true as well. If you'll go into it with gardening, you'll go into it with friendship, you'll go into it with sexuality, you'll go into it for family and recreation, then it can be one of the most beautiful, blissful, amazing relationships in your entire life. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.